Well, the story goes this way. Uh, There was a wealthy Texas land ranch owner, and um, in his quest to take up as much space as he could and hired all the people that he could to work his property, he desired to introduce them to religion. Not being a very religious man himself, he wanted everything to be balanced and everybody to have a well-rounded experience on his property, and so he purchases and builds a church uh, for everybody to go to that lives on the property while they're working. And uh, a local newspaper interviewer finds this man's design and life uh, fascinating and just begins to chronicle and journal about what this guy's up to. And so as he's interviewing him, they're driving by in the guy's truck this church. And the interviewer says to the man, um, so do you belong to that church? And you can insert an expletive here, but he says, no, that church belongs to me. And I remember reading about that and going, is there something that, that is in that that really reflects our hearts? Like, does the church work for us? Does it, is, it, is it meant to meet all of our needs and work and, and turn over and produce on our behalf and for us? Or is there something else that we were meant to be a part of when Jesus sent out the church? Was there something to, that was supposed to happen that was different and has been twisted in the way we live today? I'm getting some crazy feedback in my, my ear. I'm, it's like... I, like I don't know where it's coming from. Can I, am I? No, no, all right. I'm trying to train my dog with one of those high whistle things, and he doesn't listen, but I can hear it. So, um, <laughs> um, some might consider that an outside source, um, something from outside the church, will be its biggest downfall in this world. Something out there, some other thing, some other hotbed current issue or some other religion or some other thought process coming in will destroy the church. Well, there are many who would suggest the greatest foe to the church today is consumerism. The idea of consuming is actually a bigger danger to the church than any outside foe. Why? Because it's inside the church. We consume. I mean, we obviously were made, we consume, we eat, we drink, we take things in. But there's something that happens when we just live life to consume. And being made up of a group of consumers can be a very big problem for the church because we ask the wrong questions. I I always have these visions and these dreams and these ideas of what it would be like to speak to first and second century church folk. Like, when we get to heaven, who are we going to talk to? Who are we going to go and speak to? Who are we going to wrestle with and, and go, how did things work? And what does it look like? And, and all of those questions that we have. And, and I, I, I often put myself in the place of being asked questions by them because it helps keep things in perspective. And I, I, the, the, the idea of talking to a second century church person, someone who was possibly martyred for their faith, persecuted for their faith, lived in hiding or very openly, but just proclaiming Jesus in a very tough time, I often have these thoughts of, what if they asked me, man, you lived in 2016. I bet they came up with crazy ways to persecute y'all. Like, I bet they came up with some crazy stuff to mess you guys up. What was it like living in the church in 2016? 
And you can see where I'm going with this, can't you? Man, that elder, he forgot to tell us to sit down and we stood for so long. You know, that worship course went like 30 seconds too long. I was ready to move on. Man, that guy who was talking, he talked for way too long. We missed our lunch reservation. I mean, you can see where I'm going with this, right? You can see where our arguments, or lack thereof, speaking with first and second century church folk, really begin to fall. We begin to go, really, this is, this is what we have whittled our church experience down to? Siskel and Eberting things, liking or disliking things, critiquing from the outside, looking in, always, never engaging. This is kind of where we live. You know, I'm not, this isn't, again, last week we were, we've been talking about how the way things, just, this is just the way things are. And again, as Christ followers, who informs us of what the church should be? Our own desires? Or does Jesus have bigger plans for his bride? I know this seems extreme, but in the history of the church, we have to be extreme when it comes to guarding our hearts and minds. We have to be extreme, intentional, purposeful, directed, single-minded, whatever the word is, to remain the ecclesia. This is the church, the gathering of a purpose, not the kirka, the buildings that the church became. To guard this sentness, if you will, that the church is to walk in, you and I have to be very intentional, or we can find ourselves consuming, 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 and moving on, and consuming, and consuming, and consuming. Only in Western culture do we have the phrase church shopping. Do you know that? Now, I just want you to, for, for just a second, maybe switch your hat for a minute and go. If the body of Christ was meant to be a family, do we family shop? Think about it. Think about going home. Well, honey, looks like the four children did not listen to us yet again. It's time to close up shop. You and I, we're on. We're going somewhere. You ready? Let's move on. Let's go find some new kids. You ready? All right, here we go. <laughs> you ready? Let's go. Just kidding, boys. We love you very much. We say that we're desperate for community, but we change church communities like we change gym memberships. And if we are not careful, we can look at each other. You and I can actually look at each other like we are a commodity to be bought and sold rather than to be a family that was meant to be lived among, lived with, and lived on mission together. It's not comfortable to talk about each other as commodity, is it? It feels gross, but it's what we've done. It's what we live in in this culture. And my, my, our, our, my, my challenge is, do, how do we push back against that? How do we help people see that the church is not selling anything? That there's no product. That we are not product. That we're not bought or sold. We are lived in this, this, this picture of this living organism, not this organization or this building, but it's this living, breathing family that God intended us to be a part of. See, when I start, start thinking that way, I start to go, yes. And there's a reason we all start going, yes. 
It's because we're understanding more and more of who God made his bride to be, and that is a family. To be clear, there are key questions that I think you and I must ask when we are considering what church we are going to be family with. This doesn't mean you go in blindly and don't ask any questions and you just start doing whatever and kind of doing this, that, or the other and not finding out what does the church believe, what do they think, why are they doing what they're doing, why are they headed the way they are. But then we say, no, this is my family. These are my people. This is my tribe. These are the people I'm going to be in the trenches with. This is what we are. This is not, this is not something that kind of exists off somewhere else, but this is who we are. And why we gather together? To be reminded, as John was saying, to be reminded that we are not a commodity, but truly spiritual community is a people who care for one another and are headed in a direction together. That's, that's what we were made for. And there's something in us that goes, I am screaming for that. I think we all are. And it, it may just be kind of confusing on how we get there. We can treat the church as a shopping mall, taking what we need, window shopping the rest of the time. We can treat the church as a country club, an escape from the outside world where only those with the right credentials get in. We can treat the church like a cruise ship, a buffet of my liking, 24-7. It's all for me. Let's look at some of the consumer characteristics there. And see, when you and I go shopping, we have one thought in mind, don't we? How much can I get? Or how little can I spend? Right? When we go shopping, that is the question. There is no other question we ask when we are going to make a purchase. We brag about our ability to not have to give up any more of our money for a product. Man, I got that TV for a hundred bucks. Normally four hundred, y'all. Dude, you're a great shopper, you know? We boast about how little we can put in to getting a product, don't we? That's the consumer mentality. What's in it for me? How do I get the most out of something? We observe. We're good at observing, right? We do our shopping. We go on Amazon, we go on Google, we go store to store, we check everything out, and we find the place we can give the least of our money to when we go to buy something, right? That's what we do. I'm not going there because they're asking too much. I'm not going there because they're asking too much. I'm not going there because they're asking too much. I will go there because they're giving it away. We observe. We receive. It's about us getting something. We critique and compare. I mean, there are companies whose sole purpose is to critique and compare for you so that you don't have to do the work. You can buy online memberships and know what everyone says about everything else, and then you can go and spend your least amount of money. And then you go home. You go back home. You take what you've spent very little on, very proud of what you spent your very little money on, and you go back in the walls of your house. That's what a consumer does. And it was interesting as I was looking at this, this idea of critiquing and comparing and what we do as a church is ultimately the church, Christian folk, have gotten really good at body shaming. There's an idea and a concept in the world today that's called body shaming and it's this idea of people saying these things about, about a person's build or shape or size that they shouldn't be this way, it shouldn't look like this, you shouldn't be this way, you shouldn't be that way and it's this thing that's really turned into a, a type of bullying. And if we're honest, the church 
we've gotten really good at body shaming the body of Christ. This can't be who we are. This can't be what we were made for. To stand around and point and say it should be this way, this way, this way. Because we were actually just made to care for one another the way we have been cared for. It's a very real difference and it's a subtle shift. But it has to happen for the body of Christ to truly be able to engage in a world that says consume, consume, consume. What happens when a Christ follower pours out, pours out, pours out? Something changes. This is who we were meant to be. And the problem with this consumer view of church is that you and I will go home discussing whether or not we were fed or not rather than going, what are we going to do differently in light of what we just heard? How are we going to go home and live in light of the time we spent in worship and how the Lord encountered us in worship? How are we going to go live in light of taking communion and, and this bread and this juice and going, He gave Himself up for us? How are we going to go home and live in realization that we give generously because He gave generously to us? How are we going to go and live in light of the Word of God that we just heard? If it is the living, breathing Word of God, how are we going to go home and live in light of that? And then when we respond together, there's something about when we respond, when we hit our knees, when we go and ask for prayer, how are we going to live in light of what we have just experienced together as the ecclesia of Jesus, as the church of Jesus, as the bride of Christ? These are very different questions than a consumer might ask. But we're the bride. We're His bride. And so for you and I, we have to understand that the mission the church was not founded on a mission statement, a PR rep, a lobbyist, a salesman. Do you know that the, the church was founded on eyewitness accounts? That's it. That's the picture. The church was founded on these dudes who saw Jesus' life, they saw him die, they saw him raised from the dead, and Jesus said, now go tell people that. And the church <laughs> popping up everywhere because 12 men said, we saw something and we've been marked by it. And it's the best news you are ever going to hear. After Jesus' resurrection, he spent time with his disciples, eating with them, continuing with them, journeying with them. And um, he promised something for them. He said, look, I just want you to stay put until what I promise comes. And it's interesting because the disciples try and change the focus. If you've read Acts chapter 1, they try and go, well, when is this all going to, when are we as Israel going to be freed? And then when's our kingdom going to be restored? I love how the disciples have adventures in missing the point nine times out of ten. And it's captured for all of us to read about. And I love that. But Jesus redirects them. In Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 7, he says this. He replied, the Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, and they are not for you to know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Telling people about me everywhere. Does that leave any place out? Does it? Well, what about my school? Is that part of everywhere? What about my family? Is that part of everywhere? What about when I'm playing? And Is that part of everywhere? I love Jesus' words. 
He doesn't give us anywhere not to. <laughs> well, there's this one place Jesus said not to. No, he said everywhere. To be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere. So this really should cause us to go, wait a minute, it's not just for when we're in church, but he really does mean everywhere. Jesus' command to go and make disciples is a nonstop command. It's this thing that keeps moving. It's this thing that's always on the forefront. It's always in our eyesight. It's always in our head and our heart is that we're to go. It's not when you go to church. It's as you go from here is the mentality that Jesus speaks these words to his disciples. He's like, look, when you're heading home from church to the gas station, you're on the clock, man. <laughs> when you head from the gas station over to the restaurant, you're on the clock. This is part of everywhere. Jesus' words are huge in combating against this consumer mentality of the church. Jesus has explained to us that the Holy Spirit will be our fuel, Jesus will be our message, and people will be our concern. I love that. It's so simple. We are powered. When we're like, I don't have the strength to do that, God says, good, I'm going to give it to you anyways. But I don't know what to say. Tell them about me. Well, who should I tell? Well, people. <laughs> you get to the simple parts. This is, we, we, we try and complicate this, and it's not complicated. Jesus made it very simple. He said, this is how it's going to work. I'm going to be your strength. I'm going to be your message. And those people are going to be your concern. Simplifies things. You and I, if we want to break free from this consumer church, you and I must recognize that we are sent. We are sent. It's four letters. Sent. That makes all the difference in the world from us being a consumer-driven church or a church that says, yes, yes, Jesus, we will take what you have told us to do and we will go to the ends of the world with it. At the end of Acts chapter 1, as the disciples are discussing the man who would replace Judas, the one who betrayed Jesus, and later took his own life, we catch a glimpse of what they are invited into yet again. In verse 22, whoever is chosen will join us as a witness of Jesus' resurrection. There we go. What's the message? Jesus lived, died, rose from the dead. He's alive, and he's going to return. That's the message. And on the day of Pentecost, 50 days after Passover and Jesus' crucifixion, we're told that all the believers are meeting in one place. And then this huge windstorm comes and fills the house and it's this shaking and it causes the community to go, what's going on over there? And this fire, this, these, these, these flames land on them and it's like these, only these tongues and they start speaking and they start speaking in languages that people are like, hey, that's my native tongue and I can understand what they're saying. And just look in verse 5. At that time, there were a devout Jews from every nation living in Jerusalem. When they heard the loud noise, everyone came running and they were bewildered to hear their own languages being spoken by the believers. They were completely amazed. How can this be? They exclaimed. These people are all from Galilee, and yet we hear them speaking in our own native languages. Here we are, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, people from Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, the province of Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, that just gets better. You can fill in the words. Egypt and the areas of Libya around Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, and we all hear these people speaking in our own languages about, do you hear this? The wonderful things God has done. What a good thing to be able to talk about. 
What a fantastic thing to be able to go, you know what? Personally, I'm still figuring this whole thing out, but if the Bible is right, God has done a lot of wonderful things on my behalf. (laughs) He has sent his son to suffer and die on my behalf because my rebellious heart wants to do nothing with him. So Jesus lived on my behalf died on my behalf, and rose to purchase me something that I could never do on my own. You talk about the wonderful news of the things that God has done. This is what the church is tasked with, to make an announcement. And like a good crowd, they suggested that these guys were all drunk, which makes makes it funny to me because their response was, we can completely understand you. You must be drunk. I've never been around anyone that I can completely understand when they're drunk. Now, Peter gets up and gets to introduce his message in probably the greatest sermon introduction I have ever read. And someday I hope to be able to do it. But Peter stands up and says, everyone, listen to me. This is very important. These men are not drunk. It's 9 a.m. It's way too early for that. Greatest sermon intro ever. Someday. Someday we'll use that legitimately. You can go and read it. It's word for word. The text. But then he goes on to explain that this loud sound of these people seeking God's, speaking of God's goodness, and that now there is a way that is open for anyone, Jew and Gentile, to come to relationship with God through what Christ has done. And then Peter tries to show even more specifically how it is Jesus in Acts 2, 22. People of Israel, listen. God publicly endorsed Jesus the Nazarene by doing powerful miracles, wonders and signs through him, as you well know. But God knew what would happen. And his prearranged plan was carried out when Jesus was betrayed. With the help of lawless Gentiles, you nailed him to a cross and killed him. No big deal right there, right? You know, Verse 24, But God released him from the horrors of death and raised him back to life, for death could not keep him in its grip. Peter, is what he's doing is he's referring back to Genesis. From Genesis to Revelation, and what you see in the, in the book of Acts is over and over, the disciples are trying to help people understand God's plan from the beginning. That you and I were created to walk with Him, to be in relationship with Him. But our hearts rebelled and said, we don't want to be near God. We actually want to be God. And because of that, sin separates. There's this gap. And and instead of going, fine, have your own way and walking away from us, God is the one who decided to bridge that gap. And He did it through His Son. And this announcement is being made to these people, and it's shocking them. And so then he goes on to talk a little bit about David, you know, David and Goliath, and that he wasn't just some random king, but that he was a king who would point to an eternal king. That David's life was not just kind of this, ah, it's kind of this, this bookmark in the book. No, it's actually pointing us somewhere. There's a lineage that's important. There's an identity that's important. And this king will come from the line of David. And in verse 32, God raised Jesus from the dead, and we are all witnesses of this. Now he is exalted to the place of highest honor in heaven at God's right hand, and the Father, as he had promised, gave him the Holy Spirit to pour out upon us, just as you see and hear today. 
As the church, you and I are not salesmen or saleswomen. We're not PR firm. We aren't selling any goods. But by our words and our deeds, we are announcing something. We are participating in the same task that was handed to the disciples to point to the, to the plan of God wrapped in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. How do we know about the good news of Jesus? Because they took the mission seriously. How will another generation know about Christ and the faithfulness of God and the wonderful things he's done? Because the church takes this invitation seriously. You and I are not here because nobody told us. Somebody told us. Somebody took seriously the mission to announce the wonderful news of what God has done in Christ. And it's upon hearing this declaration that people respond. Verse 37, Peter's words pierced their hearts, and they said to him and to the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? Don't you get that way sometimes? When you hear good news, when you hear the gospel, you walk out going, what should I do? What should, that's the right question. <laughs> that is the right, that is always the right question. When we sit with each other, hear God's word, he, pray together, and worship time together, sit in small groups together, meeting with people, the right question is, what should we do as a response of all that we have just heard and been reminded of? A lot of times we go home and ask the wrong questions, but this one, you can count on being the right question. What should we do in response to what we have just heard? It's not complicated. Peter announces, and at that announcement, our hearts hear the story they were meant to be engaged in, and we need to be reminded of that over and over and over and over. Peter then explains at the hearing of the good news that Jesus is the one who bridged the gap. Verse 38, Peter replied, Each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God. Sin is, I'm going the other direction. I'm not going to run towards God. I'm going to do everything on my own. I don't want to be near Him. I want to be Him. Repentance is going, wait a minute, I'm not God. He is. He has ways that are better than mine. And if he is creator God, and he did make me, and he did save me, then that's where I want to turn. Be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is to you, to your children, and to those far away, all who have been called by the Lord our God. Then Peter continued preaching for a long time, strongly urging all his listeners, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Those who believed what Peter said were baptized and added to the church that day. So it's as if this this announcement of me saying, I believe that Jesus is who he is through baptism, hey, you're in the mission. You're part. Do work. Go. How are people going to know unless somebody is sent? How are they going to respond unless they hear? Who's going to tell them? Oh, right, the church. The church makes that announcement. What Jesus has accomplished on our behalf. So you and I aren't looking at a bunch of people who are consumers in the scripture, but we are looking at people who have been consumed. It's that simple. Are you a consumer or have you been consumed? Have you been consumed, first of all, that you've been called by God? That he would, that he would send out an invitation to come to the table through Jesus? Does that shock you? Does it cause you to go, what in the world? That's an incredible invitation. That's better than getting invited to an after party by 
by Lady Gaga or, or somebody else or who's the popular kid in the middle school right now. I don't know, okay? This is the greatest invitation is to be called by God to be a part of his family. Does that blow your mind? Consumed, not consuming. Stop, they stopped running from God, but they run towards him. They're consumed with this. If God is this generous, then I want to be near him all the time. They come to God through faith in Christ, totally forgiven and new. This is what the gospel says, that we've been made new. Does that not blow your mind? Does that not cause you to go, what? The what? <laughs> like, new. But I know what I've done in the past. I know where I've been. I know what I've seen. Jesus, I have seen some things. But you're new. Consumed. They were filled with the power of God. Does that freak you out a little bit? Freaks me out. To know that he's filled us with his strength to do what he's called us to do. So that means he's going to be the one who, who, who lets me know, where are you going? What are you going to do? This is how you're going to do it. He's going to be the one who gives me all those marching orders and those instructions. And I'm listening and I'm going, this is incredible. I don't know how this works. But Lord, if you're inviting me, I want to be a part. And they were added to the church. They were a part. They belonged. They weren't just consuming. But they were consumed by this good news. The church plant, fueled and funded by God, on their launch Sunday saw 3,000 people believe that the gospel is true. And you and I are now here because of that. Because of that story. You and I are tasting and seeing the Lord's goodness because of that story. Um, Tony Campola tells a story about a duck town. I don't know if you've ever heard this one, but he... He basically says that there's these ducks every Sunday. They get out of their duck house and they walk down the duck street to the duck church and they waddle into the church and the, the duck minister waddles up the stairs and opens the duck Bible and begins to tell the ducks, you have wings, you can fly, you, no fence can hold you in and no, no cage. You were made to fly like birds and you were made to go and soar and, and be all this. And the ducks quacked and quacked and quacked, amen. And then they waddled home. I'm convinced we don't realize how powerful the church is. I'm convinced we, we think we're pretty pathetic and weak. We'll say amen, but the reality is the very power of God moving his people, taking his message to people. There is no greater force on the earth. And I don't want you to see that as this power crush. No. You know how we're meant to go? Caring for one another. How ridiculous is that? (laughs) How are you supposed to go from here? Caring for one another. But I got this thing. Go and care for one another. Well, who should I actually care for? Well, Jesus said your neighbor, your friend, your enemy. I think that's pretty much everybody. How do I go from here? You care for each other. And this is the picture we see. After we see the Holy Spirit come and power this church, Jesus being central to the message, we see there what happens to the believers in verse 42 to 47. Our favorite verses on the church. 
All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders, and all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshipped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. As the band comes and we close our time together here, in 2006, Sylvester Stallone surprised the world with another Rocky movie. I love Rocky movies. I love any movie that's like this overcoming type of thing. I even love the one with Tommy Gunn. So for those of you that don't know that one, that's okay. But it was interesting because as this movie came out, more about Sylvester Stallone's faith started being talked about. And um, he started to talk about how his Christian upbringing, people were like, what? Christian upbringing? What? What is this? You know, and they start listening a little bit more. He said his Christian influence, the upbringing that he had, influenced Rocky One. You know, the very first Rocky, which you know is, is is fantastic. And and Stallone, in an interview, said this. He said, "I was raised in a Christian home. I was, I'm just kidding. I won't do that. I'm just kidding. I was raised in a Christian home. I went to Catholic schools, and I was taught the faith. I went as far as I could with it until I got out to the area of the so-called world." And was presented with temptation. I kind of lost my way and made a lot of bad choices. And it says that later on in the article, it talks about how his pursuit of all of this stuff and things left him unsatisfied. And so he just was like, well, how do I deal with this not resting, not being satisfied? Well, he said, well, I go back to church. And this is what he said. He said, the more I go to church, the more I turn myself over to the process of believing in Jesus and listening to his word, and having him guide my hand. Stallone said that he realized he needed to trust Christ more than himself. He says, you need to have the experience and the guidance of someone else. You can't train yourself. I feel the same way about Christianity and the church. The church is the gym of the soul. Like, I found that fascinating, that the way he was able to remember that the things of this world would not satisfy was saying, I need to be a part of a church. And he just did what he learned as a kid. And he went back. And he was being reminded of all the things that he has in Christ. That's where we are at. And the church goes and cares in response to that. You and I hear this and we say, yes, family, care, we get it. So what does it mean for us now this morning? I believe Brennan Manning puts it best. He says, I believe that the real difference in the American church is not between conservatives or liberals, fundamentalists or charismatics or Republicans or Democrats. The real difference is between the aware and the unaware. Aware? Aware of what? That you've been loved much in Christ. That He loved you first. That He sought you out in your wandering. That He knows your past, your present, your future, and still called you to be a part of the work He set you apart for before the foundations of the world. Those who are aware and those who are unaware. Where do we become informed? Where do we become aware? In His presence. As we gather together, as we spend time in His Word, as we worship together, these are the things that will cause us 
to remember that when we go out those doors, we're sent. We're not consumers, but we've been consumed. We're a people who say, how can I serve others? How can I, who can I go to? How will I give sacrificially? How will I be a part of blessing people? How do I participate and engage in the mission, not sit back and thumbs up and thumbs down? How do I give sacrificially? Not looking, how can I give the least and get the most? How do I compliment and encourage? Not by saying nice things, but how do I come alongside and add the gifts and the strengths that I have to be a part of this reflection of God? How do I go out, not go home? How do I go out, not go home? Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this way, he said, you know what, if you're consumed with looking for the perfect community, you'll never find it. But if you start loving people, community will form around you. I believe that to be the picture of the church. I believe that's why people want to be a part of a church, is because they see people loving well, and they go, I want in on that. And then eventually there's a turning outward that goes, oh, I was meant to do this for others too. And there's a turning in, and there's a turning out, turning in, and turning out, turning in, and turning out. You and I have been tasked with that, not to consume, to be consumed, obviously, but to ask the right questions. Our hearts, they've been hit. What do we do now? So this morning, if if you're in that place and you're like, man, baptism or whatever, I don't know what the Lord would be calling you to. I would say, don't ignore him. That's what I'd say. And then I would say, if you're like, but I don't know what to do, I would say, include people in on what's next. Do it with people. Journey with people. Ask the questions with people. Our elders will be over there, and they'll be ready to pray for you. If you don't even want to tell them what you're walking in, you can just say, hey, pray for me, because there's some stuff I need to do, and I don't know how to do it, but I need some prayer. I'll be over here. If you're like, I got other questions, we can answer. We'll pray. We'll talk. Maybe over coffee. It's not, I, don't know, I don't necessarily believe in the one-time fix thing where we stand and not. Yes, everything is good. I get it now. No, it's a journey. It's a processing. It's unpacking. It's going somewhere together. And then this place is always open. If you're like, I just need to physically get out of my seat and move and confess and, 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 and just get with the Lord, space is for you as well. Father, I'm asking that by your spirit, we would shift in our hearts from a consumer mentality to one who has been consumed. And that Jesus, we would take our responsibility of caring for each other very seriously. Lord, when we are consumed with caring for one another, all the petty stuff goes away. And what's most important remains, and that is you have loved us with a very generous love. Let us be reflective of that to each other. It's in your name we pray.